Hi everyone, I'm Emma Partridge, and I want to welcome you to a new season of All Right, Now What? A podcast by the Canadian Women's Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us for our first three seasons where we explore the pandemic's impact on women and girls. But even when this virus recedes, its impacts will continue to be felt. We still need systemic change to achieve gender equality. So moving forward, every week our experts will put an intersectional feminist lens on one topic we've all been hearing about. The issues and stories that just seem to keep resurfacing and make you wonder, why is this still happening? How is it possible we haven't fixed this yet? We're going to explore the systemic roots of these issues and real strategies for change. The work of the Canadian Women's Foundation and the organizations that we support takes place on traditional First Nations, Métis, and Inuit territories. We are grateful for the opportunity to meet and work on this land. However, we recognize that land acknowledgements are not enough. We need to pursue truth, reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship in an ongoing effort to make right with all our relations. Hey, Andrea. Hi, Emma. How's it going? Good. How's it going with you? Yeah, not not bad, um, but I think we're discussing a pretty serious topic today. That's right. Um, all the stuff we've seen in the news about sexual harassment and um, misconduct in the military has got us thinking about not just sexual harassment at work, but how it plays out in lots of different sectors, particularly sectors where maybe there's not that many women. Definitely. We're so lucky to be joined by two amazing guests to talk about exactly that. So I'll let them introduce themselves. My name is Julie S. Lalonde, and I am a public educator and women's rights activist based in Ottawa. I'm Kate Cornell. I'm the research and training director with After Me Too. I'm an arts advocate, and I've worked with the performing arts industry in Canada for 25 years, and I'm in Scarborough, Ontario. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us. So I think I'm going to jump in with the first question. We were really thinking about the prevalence of sexual and gender-based harassment in many industries, uh, mostly because we saw a lot of stories these days about military sexual abuse scandals. But we want to talk about it broadly as well, in terms of the big picture on sexual harassment and work in Canada. What's that picture look like? Maybe, Julie, you can start us off? We know that we have high rates of workplace harassment in Canada in various industries. And I think over the past few years, we've seen certain ones kind of pop up, usually as a result of a particular incident that's fairly high profile. But we know that this is happening across the board. Um, and we know that in industries in which the women are underrepresented, that there is going to be an increased level of harassment. Similarly, workspaces that are largely white or largely able-bodied or largely young or largely of the same age. Um, we know that those conditions make it that when other folks join, they are really made to feel as though they are there on borrowed time, that it is a privilege that we let you work here. And when folks step out of line in any way, shape or form, um, harassment is one way in which we try to keep folks in line. I'll just add that um, at After Me Too, we did a survey in the fall of workers in the performing arts, film and television industry. And uh, we heard uh, very loudly uh, from that constituency, 82% of workers uh, in my industry have personally experienced workplace sexual harassment in their, their work life. So the, the numbers are high 
Absolutely, in those industries that that Julie just listed, but also the arts industry has slightly more women than men in it. But the women are in the precarious work, and and the men are in those C-suite positions. So that's also another nuance um, that that just adds to the rates of workplace sexual harassment. So I'm curious to hear how the pandemic perhaps has impacted. Maybe it's worsened the rates of harassment. Maybe it's changed it. Yeah, and I'm going to share some incredible data um, from colleagues at Capicoa, which is an association that looks at the live performing arts. And so they've been tracking since COVID began uh, in March 2020, the cumulative cumulative losses of jobs and how it has hit uh, my industry. And so um, we've seen 151,000 jobs lost. I like to uh, be an optimist and see it as an opportunity because we've had uh, um, our workplaces primarily closed down. There has been a, a great uh, pause and, and an opportunity to talk about workplace culture and to talk about building back better. Julie, what about you? You've been doing uh, training on bystander intervention, and I'm really curious in that pandemic context as well, how that's been going. Yeah, so I, I'm of two minds because I'm seeing on the one hand, you know, as someone who's been doing bystander training for almost 20 years, I'm seeing unprecedented levels of interest. And I think, you know, exactly to echo what you said, that People are really thinking about, we're going to a new normal. What does a new normal look like? So those pieces are really positive. Um, What I'm seeing mostly, and I agree, we don't have great stats on workplace specifically. We do know that rates of femicide have gone up, rates of domestic homicide have gone up. So we know that life is very dangerous for many women. Um, But what I'm seeing is a really interesting shift in what that, that violence and harassment looks like for folks. So I used to do lots of, you know, pre pandemic, I did lots of work on campuses and in schools around alcohol-facilitated sexual violence. Well, that's kind of taken a bit of a side, but we've seen a huge increase in online harassment, um, high school students who are being Zoom-bombed, you know, just like really horrific stuff that we're seeing online that's a little bit more difficult to really put your finger on. The scenarios, I would say, are what's really changed for me, not necessarily the volume, um, but just the ways in which the misogyny, the racism, all of those things are, are manifesting themselves. Going back to um, harassment workplace industries. So Julie, you started to touch on this a little bit, but what are sort of the systemic bases that make certain industries more at risk for this um, sort of pattern of harassment than others? Is it just the case that if there's more men in them, there's going to be more harassment or does it go deeper than that? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a part of it. And and my work with the Canadian Armed Forces is proof of that. So, you know, the Canadian Armed Forces is aiming for 18% representation of women. That's their goal, which is so atrociously low, it's embarrassing. Um, and even when you look at the levels of representation of like what roles women occupy in those spaces, they're, you know, precarious positions with no power. Um, and when you're talking about a hierarchical organization like the Canadian Armed Forces, Power is absolutely everything. So um, we are, we know that large, you know, when women are outnumbered, when people of color are outnumbered, that that's absolutely going to contribute to um, high levels of harassment. We know exactly, um, you know, as we said, that if women are not in leadership positions, um, but even just the nature of the work that you do, um, you know, women who work in traditionally female roles, what we, you know, call the pink ghetto, for example, um, experience incredibly high rates of harassment from their clientele. Uh, you know, nurses from patients, PSW from patients, 
Um, and so again, not even just, you know, women far outnumber men in those particular industries, but because the nature of the work is not respected because it's viewed as quote unquote women's work, um, that also contributes. And so then when you look at the opposite hyper masculine environments, like construction, the trades, the military, the police, then again, not only are you just, you know, quantitatively outnumbered, um, but the nature of the work is that it's considered hyper masculine. And so there's this reinforcement all the time that you can will allow you to be here if you act like a man. Um, and if you don't draw attention to the fact that you're a woman or you're black or you're queer or et cetera. Uh, I just want to add to that. So I have had the absolute privilege of uh, working with Western University's Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children, uh, Barb McQuarrie and her team there. And so we're developing some asynchronous training for uh, vulnerable workers in all of the federally regulated industries. So I have learned a lot about trucking, about longshoremen, um, about industries that are very different in terms of demographics to, to my industry in the performing arts. And, and what I've learned from uh, the research from, from Western Ontario, from Western University, is the, the nuance that you talked about, uh, uh, Julie, is that uh, are you man enough to do this job? And that may not just necessarily be uh, um, male supervisor and, and female worker. That could be male supervisor, male worker, indigenous worker, South Asian worker. That uh, um, harassment and, and bullying and violence is absolutely intersectional. Um, so thinking about Me Too for a second, you know, we, we know this movement that was started off by Tarana Burke and her work in communities. Um, and she was really focused on what black young women were going through and, and racialized youth that she was working with. One of the things that was so um, brought to light is the fact that the Me Too movement, while vital, also might have missed some of the stories and some of the realities for different people, depending on their identities. And I do wonder about uh, Me Too in terms of speaking to workplace harassment. Yes, we heard about workplace harassment, but we didn't necessarily hear about all industries and all sectors and all workplaces. I'd like to get a sense from you, what was maybe missed in the conversation when we were talking about Me Too in workplaces, which industries do we forget? Kate, I'm thinking about uh, some of the, the stuff that you've been looking at, the federally regulated things that we never think about, many of us urbanites. What we're doing at After Me Too is looking at the performing arts industry as the pilot industry and then moving from there. But I, I think is what, I would say has been missing is definitely within performing arts, uh, Me Too was co-opted primarily by white women. And we haven't seen uh, white women in, in heterosexual forms of harassment. So we haven't really seen, and this is what we've been uh, studying with colleagues at Western University, is is the nuance of, of harassment, bullying, and, and violence is that uh, um, there, we need to talk about uh, um, harassment within the queer community. We need to talk about what does it mean to be harassed when you have a disability or a deaf. Like the, I, I think is what was missing. I'm not going to point to a specific industry, but I'm just going to say I think that interse intersectionality was missing. Yeah, I mean, I would agree absolutely, and I think the other intersection is around um, you know the precarious work piece, and specifically around young women. I mean, when you look at in Canada, for example, the folks who are experiencing sexual harassment, a lot of it is high school students. You're young. You work at a pub. 
you, you know, I work at the mall and I was, you know, I, my boss had a calendar counting down to my 18th birthday in the back stock room. And everyone thought this was hilarious. Um, you know, sex workers, like there's lots and lots of folks who we just assume that that is the price you pay. If you're, you know, a hot young woman and you work as a server, like that's how it's going to be. Um, if you're a sex worker, that's how it's going to be. Uh, and so I think that again, that nuance, that intersectionality, um, and then, yeah, looking at people who work in those, you know, underground economies, whether it's sex work, whether it's running, a, you know, a childcare facility out of your home, um, you know, whether it's a nanny that then turns into another job, like there's so much uh, stuff that, you know, as you were saying, doesn't fit under a traditional job, doesn't fit under, you know, I'm unionized or I even know who to report to. Um, and, you know, I'm a tree planter. I'm, a, you know, like all of these jobs that are, I mean, are vital um, to how the you know, the economy churns and how society churns and yet are often forgotten because people still really have uh, like a stereotypical like 1980s PSA about someone being groped in the office. You know, I think that's just like where people's limited understanding is. And yet the, the some of the earliest jobs that women get in the workplace uh, set the tone for what we expect when we work in our jobs. And that's why we don't speak out because we assume, yeah, he's old and so he's going to be creepy. That's just how it's going to be. Yeah, this is such a good segue because the next question I had was about reporting sexual harassment in the workplace because obviously the rates of harassment are quite high and we're talking now about all the systemic and structural pieces that go into making certain industries and certain women more vulnerable to that. But then, you know, once harassment happens, we run into this other challenge of how do they report it? Because some industries, like we're saying, the gig economy it's just not set up to do that. And it's not set up to um, allow people to report in a way that finds justice. So I guess I'm wondering, like, what are the other challenges to reporting uh, sexual harassment in the workplace that you that you've been seeing or have seen? Well, I would say, first of all, I'm 36 years old, I have been working since I was 16 years old. And I the only time I've ever had a union environment is when I was a teacher's assistant um in grad school and one of the policies was there was one professor in particular who was known for being handsy and so he just was not assigned female TAs um and so i've never had the protection of a union environment and even when i did in that limited capacity it was still limited by we have to um you know protect this tenured professor and um balance that with these young women are going to complain so I, it is, even when you have a supposedly clear process, even when you have recourse, it's not easy to know what your rights are. Um, but more than that, what I teach in my work when I'm going into workplaces in particular is like, you decide whether or not it's just a piece of paper or not. Um, and climate decides whether or not people feel comfortable. And so even at a practical level, if you're in HR or you're in management and you're trying to change the culture, yeah, you've got to have policies and procedures, obviously. But you also have to train people on what they are. You have to be very specific. And when you file a complaint, this is what happens. Is there an informal process? Or is the second I say something, does it set off a process that I can't stop once that train gets going? Like you've got to get into the weeds because survivors of all forms of violence do not trust that systems are going to be there for us. So you have to over explain and remind people frequently um, that we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you. Uh, and that's in the ideal conditions where there is a clear sort of chain of command or a process where you file a complaint. But for most people, 
I would say, especially as a millennial, right? It's, you know, working, I work multiple contracts. I technically work for myself, but I have like 60, 70 clients a year. I'm doing like, I wouldn't even know. I personally, I work in the field and I literally would not even know what to do if I was giving a workshop um, and I was harmed in some way. I would have to go through their particular process because they're my client and it was in their school or their office. And that's not like, I'm not a special snowflake. Like that's a lot of us are juggling multiple contracts multiple different environments. Julie, it's like you, you've you worked in the performing arts industry. I, 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 do, uh, I do appreciate the Canada Labor Code and, and our provincial codes in, in uh, the rigorous uh, regulations that they put forward, but they are, are stuck in the 20th century expecting that every single workplace has an HR. <laughs> that every single workplace is unionized. No. And I, and I feel like you have, have hit the nail on the head that the, the major gaps in the system, which are growing day by day, is that gig economy are, are, are the workers who are consultants, are the workers who are employees who maybe don't know that they're employees. Uh, um, and, and particularly, um, because I've worked a lot in the in the small not for profit area, those small workplaces of under ten employees who mean well but didn't know that they needed to have a policy and don't figure things out until the first report comes forward. And so I think there's a lot you, you talked about uh, um, building a climate and building a culture. I think that uh, um, to allow for more reporting, we really need all employees, all supervisors to to buy in and understand what the employees' rights are and understand what the employer's responsibilities are. Have you seen an organization or community group or uh, any sort of organization respond well and create that sort of tangible shift? Have you seen harassment get better in any particular organization or sector? You can say no. <laughs> yeah, I would say my, my gut instinct is like no. Um, but um, I, th- I think there were some really good templates. And so, for example, just this past week, I was uh, training folks at the Canadian Forces College, which is, um, you know, professional development within the Canadian Armed Forces, graduating class. They're about to go oversee hundreds of troops. Uh, And they ask me the same question, you know, the Canadian Armed Forces is having this massive crisis because of sexual violence. Like, where can we look to? Uh, And I would say nowhere, but don't view that as a uh, barrier, view that as an opportunity to show some leadership, um, to to be the leader. Instead of thinking, oh, this can't be done because no one's ever done it before, pivot and think we can lead on this issue. We can come up with something innovative. We can take a risk and see what happens. Uh, I do think there's been some good templates. So, for example, in Ontario, we have provincial legislation that says that campuses must have policies and procedures. They must do training. They must do prevention. They must also release statistics. So it forces a certain level of transparency and actually encourages people to come forward. Where previously, the the few campuses that were open about their rates of violence were then made to look like they were worse than other campuses, but it's just because they were being transparent. So by forcing that whole sector to say, you got to release statistics, it incentivizes them to be transparent because they're not the only ones talking about this. So again, we haven't, that only came to be in the last few years in Ontario. So it's still waiting to see the, the direct impacts of that. But 
Um, I think, you know, we, and it was legislation, like it was legislated in Ontario that you needed to do that, which was pretty groundbreaking. Um, and I think that's what we need to see more of is not just governments saying, please gently do this. But if you don't, you're not going to get funded. Like, do you want funding? Then it needs to be tied to really tangible markers. And I think that's how you, um, you know, force some folks, because the reality is what we know is the moral argument is not working. Yeah, uh, uh, just agreeing with you in the arts community, the non-profit arts community, uh, we have funders at, at all levels of government and we've seen funders like the Canada Council for the Arts at the federal level really uh, um, put their money where their mouth is when it comes to requiring policies. And I'd like to see governments have, and this is maybe <laughs> a, a really big dream, to have some consistency across the board that it's not just one funder, that it is multiple funders working together and asking for the same uh, um, level uh, of commitment to these policies. I'd also like to see the federal and provincial governments actually imposing fines on companies who don't follow the legislation. The legislation is there. It needs to be followed. And, and as you said, Julie, there needs to be financial repercussions for those companies that don't follow through. Um, I'm wondering about alternative methods of justice. So my concern with laws and policies and practices, is the mainstream stuff, is that it's never been good at addressing things like gender-based violence. It's never been awesome at addressing things like racism, sexism, transphobia, all the isms. I want to know what alternative methods of justice do we need to be thinking about, funding, taking more seriously, and maybe integrating into workspaces? Julie, how about you start? Uh, I think if you have a survivor-directed, trauma-informed policy, then that paves the way for you to have, uh, you know, whether it's some sort of justice or an accountability process that serves the needs of everyone. Uh, and that's always my biggest advice to people is that, you know, whether you're talking about bystander prevention in a public space or you're talking about handling and disclosure, it all fundamentally comes down to checking in with the person that was harmed and giving them the baton to decide what happens next, because so often, I mean, that's just part of all of the, the mythology and the stereotypes and the misogyny around how we talk about sexual violence is this idea that women are vindictive, that we, the second someone harms us, we want that person to be fired. We want them to be excommunicated from the community. Um, they're dead to us. When in fact, what we know is the vast majority of survivors are only reporting in the hopes of protecting others. They want an apology and they want a commitment that it's not going to happen again. Um, that is what the vast, vast majority of survivors are looking for, which is why so few of them are calling police because they know that's not where they're gonna get that answer. Um, and so these informal process, you can formalize what we've been typically using as an informal process, which is someone is concerned about someone else's behavior. Someone has been harmed regardless of whether it meets the threshold of the legal system or not, this person says they were harmed. Why can't we just run with that, explore what that looks like, um, and give them the power to decide what happens next? Um, and I think if more people had that approach, then the idea of going outside of the formal structures isn't that scary because you realize, actually, this is easier for everyone involved because everyone feels like it was fair um, and the survivor is more likely to be um, served by that, which means they're not going to come back. They're not going to file a complaint against you. They're not going to call a human rights office. They're not going to do all of these things because you answered their question, which was, how can we make sure this doesn't happen again? <laughs> um, and so I think if we just started from that place, which is believe people 
and trust that they have the knowledge to know what is best for them, then that absolutely paves the way for various creative, innovative ways of um, making sure that there's accountability, but also a recognition that, you know, these are members of our community. Thanks for listening. Just by downloading and sharing the show, you're supporting gender equality. If you'd like to help Canada get even closer to gender justice, consider donating to support our work at canadianwomen.org. Until next time.